0: everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where camp is over, the laundry is piled up, and everyone smells bad. That is correct, but that's what you get when everyone comes home. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nahum Segal Network. You can find me here right after Allison and right before Nahum's live lunch. And who do I see behind the board? Somebody who's been talking about a lot of sports, none of which I understand, Yoni Pollack.
1: I don't smell that bad, do no,
0: I? No, I really was not referring to you. Oh, I was I have like am concerned. I was like, shoot, I thought like, I put on deodorant this morning. Like, I, I you know. would have told you in my oh-so-subtle way. In a subtle way. Yeah, That's because, nice. I mean, our listeners don't know that I have a crazy- crazy sense of smell my olfactory senses work a little bit more than they should
1: which is not great if you like travel by subway
0: and i was about to mention that i seriously (laughs) like hold my breath and breathe through my mouth for my entire commute
1: i just can't
0: take the chance of smelling something bad right but you would be frank with me i feel like you don't need to say it subtly. you could just outright i'd be like i'd be like yoni what's that smell I mean, that's what I do with my kids. I'd be like, what's that smell? And then I would subtly suggest that maybe if they don't smell themselves, that maybe it's they who smell. But I I think I would have handled you differently. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm not so sure because sometimes I do treat you like you're my child and I do apologize (laughs) for that. Right. Right, There is that. Um, But truthfully, yes, any of the smells I've been smelling lately are not yours. Good. Good. Yeah, it was funny though cuz I brought in a whole bunch of dry cleaning that I had gotten back from camp already and I took it out of, you know, the dry cleaning bag and I put it on the counter and the guy behind the counter goes, "Oh, smells like camp." And I said, "That's a smell." He goes, "Oh, that's a smell all right." So <laughs> he understood what I was saying. Let's go through today's national holidays. It is National Airborne Day. Smell. Right, yeah. exactly. I assume it has something to do with that. National Roller Coaster Day. No, thanks. Not for me. No, I will watch you on the on the roller coaster. I will not partake in the roller coaster. It's also National Surveillance Day, which only makes me want to watch our security cameras a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. And wonder about all the security cameras that are around this city mm-hmm. that people are watching us. That is correct. Um, by the way, so people should know that tomorrow is actually National Non-For-Profit Day. Cool. Yes. And so if you missed the 2018 FJB fundraiser the jam and a marathon you can still donate at fjbunity.org i like to joke that the website is open 24 hours a day it actually is open 24 hours a day we appreciate your support as we continue our commitment to you to bring new exciting original and timely content to you our loyal listeners we're going to quickly do a fortune cookie my fortune last week was spot on Let's see how we do, and I yoni nothing nothing personal, but I think it's been spot on because you haven't been picking these. I'm just <laughs> it's nothing personal. I'm just saying I'm just pointing it out. Someone can read your mind sorry surveillance for, I su- feel like right sorry like, for that like... person is all I have to say, uh, yeah. but um, we're gonna play those numbers later. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. My guest this morning is the author of Helen Back, Wife and Mother, Doctor and Patient, Dragon Slayer. She is Dr. Tali Lando Aronoff. She joins us by phone, probably between surgeries, ones that she is performing, actually. Uh, Dr. Aronoff is a full-time pediatric otolaryng. Psychologist, which is a tough, tough word. She is a ENT surgeon with a busy practice split between her offices and the operating room. She is also a mother of three young girls and an enthusiastic scuba diver and breast cancer survivor. She grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, lived in New York City for a decade and now lives in Westchester with her husband and children. And she joins us this morning. Good morning, doctor. Hi, how are you? I am well. Thank you so much for making the time. And yeah, I joked about you being between surgeries, but I'm probably right, right?
1: (laughs) I I actually just finished my fifth. Surgery, and I'm in between my surgeries and my office hours. So you're you're kind of right, but but I finished at least one part of my day.
0: Oh my gosh, I I give you a tremendous amount of credit, not only because I read the book, and we'll discuss that in a moment, but as I appreciate balancing the schedule of being a, a, a full time mom and being a full time doctor, neither of which are part time jobs. I can only imagine that you are. An unbelievably talented juggler.
1: Uh, I mean, you know, some balls get dropped, but you just try not to drop the important ones.
0: Right. A hundred percent and well said. So um, I I, want to start sort of at the beginning. Your story, your personal narrative, hell and back, wife and mother, doctor and patient, Dragon Slayer, available on Amazon, is your story, your personal triumph through the diagnosis of breast cancer till the end which is part of where we meet you today so i was wondering if you could just start a little bit with um your diagnosis and when and when in life that all happened for you
1: absolutely um you know a lot of my book is about feeling really blindsided because i have a very big ashkenazi jewish family um you know my grandmother had 10 siblings and cancer specifically breast cancer was just not predominant at all and so you know in life the things that you're really not worried about often are the things that get you and that was kind of my situation so I, I had um, actually growing up in Allentown there was a family that had the BRCA gene and it was like I grew up with that understanding we were very close to them and they actually lost a child to breast cancer and the rest of their children went on and had prophylactic bilateral mastectomies. And it just was so other to me. I was in this category of not worrying about that, you know. And then I, I actually had my third daughter prematurely. And when she was five months old, she was in the NICU for about a month and a half. So she had only been home for probably three and a half months. Um, and I had just gotten back to work you know, because I I took kind of a prolonged maternity leave because when she was discharged from the hospital, she was only four pounds. (laughs) So I was planning. And as I had with my other children to go right back to operating like six weeks after having a baby, I just felt like I couldn't leave this teeny tiny little baby. And then my other toddlers, the nanny. So I had literally just like ramped back up. I was just getting my sea legs back. And Unfortunately, my, um, and I talk about this a lot in the book, but my my father, who is a brilliant mind, rabbinically, actually, um, and also, but he was in the business world, had two weeks prior just been diagnosed with a brain tumor, a malignant brain tumor, and I really was focused on him, and we were all, like, galvanized into action over him, which was extremely shocking, and one night the night before his surgery, I I just accidentally kind of brushed my hand against my chest. And I know what a tumor feels like. So I just, it was like one o'clock in the morning. It was one of those very surreal experiences where you think like, am I dreaming? Am I awake? I hope I'm dreaming. And when I woke up, it was still there. And so I woke up, I had my operating room, day was full, so I had to go to the OR. And I called as soon as it was nine o'clock, the breast radiologist that works for our medical center. And I just told him the story, you know, of course, people think you're like a young breastfeeding, or I'd I'd stopped breastfeeding, but very recently, mother, and so it's going to be something benign. So he kind of calmed me down a little bit about It's probably nothing, but please come in. And he actually had his staff stay open for me so that I could finish my surgical schedule. And I went over there (laughs) and I didn't even tell anyone I was going there, except for the nurses in my OR that day, who I was very close to. But I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell anyone. I just went on my own. And within, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes of them doing, they did a mammogram first and then they... Brought me into a room to do an ultrasound. And like before he walked in the room, I I knew it was cancer. Mm. So when he, it wasn't just like just cancer. And that was the kind of crazy road that I went down. But so there I am. I'm alone. No one knows I'm there. And um, it's a really amazing story that I hope people will read about in the book. But my best friend from medical school had actually become a breast radiologist at Maimonides. Natalie, she was like a, um, she actually, her family came, you know, from Russia when she was a child, and she, I called her from the waiting room after they told me it was like textbook breast cancer, and she asked me to text her the images, and so I texted her the mammogram images, so obviously I didn't have biopsy results, and she just told me over the phone. This is invasive. And like this, not, you could tell. And
0: this was um, before even telling your husband. He didn't even know you had an appointment. You yeah. you were really doing this alone, completely alone. Yes, you had the support system of your friends and you were lucky to have Natalie, but you were going to you were going to have to go home and not only tell your husband, yeah. you had all these appointments and this testing without him, but you had a positive diagnosis.
1: Right. And so, I mean, Natalie really talked me through those first 10 minutes of just total fear. But we spoke later that night and then like the staff had to leave. I mean, they were <laughs> it was late. And so I just got dressed. They did, but they did a biopsy. That was another thing he offered me just to like right away do a biopsy, which was very nice of him. And I just got in my car and I literally called my husband from the car. And I just said, I can't believe I have to tell you this. Oh, God. But, and, you know, to understand the degree of impact that my father's diagnosis had on us, my on us, my, my husband was working for my father at the time. Oh. So it was just a very intense two weeks that was very grim because, you know, it wasn't, you know, he was operated on, but essentially most of the time you cannot survive long-term with the diagnosis he was given of glioblastoma. And now I'm calling him to tell him, you know, just something we never thought about. I mean, I was 37 years old with no family history, and it was just this insane conversation. Like, I don't remember the rest of it, to be honest. I just remember my opening statement because I just felt I could not wait till we, saw each other because I just needed to get something off my chest. And so, yeah, it was one of these really hard conversations. And then later that night, I mean, Natalie stayed on the phone with me for like two, three more hours after that and really got me through that like first how on earth is this happening to me type of stage so I could get myself together and like be the doctor again that my family needed at that time.
0: Wow. That is, I mean... Your personal story is enough to to make heads spin, but then coupled with the story of your father and that confluence of events would just, you know, make people throw up their hands and say, I'm out. But I want to take for a second, you know, you as as a doctor um, have potentially and I liked how you talked about this in the book. Um, potentially have connections or are able to, let's say, use the doctor card in multiple in multiple opportunities, and that's and that uh, is not a criticism at all. It's part mm-hmm. of it's part of you know that that kind of camaraderie, and you know there's that professional um, you know that professional courtesy that you give to someone else in your field. I get it um, completely, but what's interesting to me is that. You know in in so many different in so many different realms, when somebody is looking for the best medical care, they head to Manhattan, and instead, right. you had such confidence in your in your friend that you went to the Maimonides in Brooklyn and said, "This is where I'm going to get my care. I am a doctor and I have multiple facilities potentially at my fingertips, and I am you know I, I could go." Many different places, but I am going to trust the physician that I know, and I'm going to trust the facility there, and that's where I want to get my care.
1: It's, this is such an interesting subject in general because, um, first of all, Brooklyn's like the least convenient place in the world for someone <laughs> from Westchester, and I do curse inside my uh, head every time I'm doing the drive, but... Um, Yes, I was completely pulled to Manhattan, as most people are, but the irony of it is I'm a completely Manhattan-trained individual surgeon who works in Westchester, and so I'm very aware that people of super high caliber are living close to where... I mean, are, sorry, are working close to where they live within the New York area so commonly that really these people are trading between jobs. The people that were at Maimonides, one of them, I had trained under at Cornell. He was a plastic surgeon. And we rotate through plastic surgery during internships. So he was a guy that Maimonides had lured to Maimonides because of his expertise and his name. And then the other person at Maimonides was from Sloan Kettering. And so, you know, yes, it was Maimonides, but the people were New York people, and I trusted them. And really, Natalie first said just, you know, I don't talk about it so much in the book because I really didn't want to embarrass anyone, but I was told that my lymph nodes were negative. I did have an ultrasound-guided biopsy that was negative hmm. for spread to the lymph nodes. And when I talked to Natalie, she had so much She's really amazing, and, but you don't know that as a friend of a person, but she said, you know, I just want to repeat the imaging. It would make me feel better Wow. because it affects surgical planning. It doesn't mean this could never have been detected. It just makes the plan different initially during your big, you know, mastectomy surgery. And so I went out there really so she could repeat my, my imaging, and she found a positive lymph node. Wow. That she even admitted that she didn't think she would call positive, and maybe she overcalled it because I was her friend and she was nervous. And the downside of doing an extra biopsy with a needle was so little, and she then found a cancer that was that wasn't on the MRI, oh that wasn't God. shown on my first <sighs> ultrasound. Wow. And so yeah, and so then I knew I had metastatic disease, locally metastatic disease, and it made them plan to do instead of what the typical thing they do if they don't know there's metastatic disease and there's nothing palpable in the lymph nodes of the of the arm is they do a sentinel node like a sampling. Right. And this, instead, for me, they planned a what they call a comprehensive, like a clean-out, you know, and mm-hmm. so it was a different surgery.
0: Wow. Unbelievable. I, yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. So you were really in very good hands.
1: Yes, and she also was like, just meet the team that I work with because... I I want you to meet them and I want, you don't have to commit to anything. And then it's like trying on your first wedding dress (laughs) that you love. (laughs) You just come back to it every time. And so I did my due diligence and I ran around and I got my second and third opinions and everybody was like New York and all these things. And then at the end of the day, I just, you know, it was not just about the expertise. It was that Natalie took me. I desperately needed to still be a surgeon and a physician because I was, like, really losing my identity during this process in a lot of ways. I was so defined by my career and being the caretaker of patients. And she kept pulling me out, you know, of the waiting room, kind of letting me sit in her office, getting coffee with me. And some of that is, I think, what maintained my sanity through a lot of that. Dr. Hemo and radiation and
0: stuff like that. Dr. Tali Lando Aronoff joins us this morning on That's Life. She is the author of *Helen Back*, wife and mother, doctor and patient, dragon slayer. Let's talk for a second about doctors being bad patients. And I really appreciated that chapter in your <laughs> in your book. I will tell you that um, while this other person that I'm referencing for the for the moment did not write a book about her experiences, I ha- I, I know somebody else who is a doctor who. Um, experienced experienced, uh, who survived breast cancer and also had a double mastectomy and the whole nine yards. And I, I wonder, I wonder what it's like to be a doctor as a patient because, and and yes, I, I joke that no one should ever go to WebMD. No one should go to WebMD because a little knowledge is a terrible thing. And when you finish with WebMD and you think you have every single disease on the planet but here you have more than a little bit of knowledge you as doctors have a tremendous amount of knowledge even if oncology is not your field you know too much in this case so how do you balance that balance the doctor and patient
1: yeah it was just a really crazy back and forth, because I'm not just a doctor, I'm a surgeon. And surgeons, like, my job is in the operating room. I I live, that's where I go to work. You know, it has no, none of this mysterious uh, fear, all that stuff you would think. Um, And on the one hand, I did let myself finally go into, I am a patient, and I tried to trust in what other people were doing Um, I think it helped me to speak the lingo, Mm. and that kind of shortcutted me. I mean, I took a lot of shortcuts to the sense of things got done super fast. I mean, from the time that I felt the lump till the time I was on the table was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 days. Wow. So. I did use that to my advantage, but then in so many other ways, I I actually didn't read every single medical journal, like some doctors approaches is just like, just totally become an expert in that field. Like you said, I was not an oncologist and I, I actually just, that was too much for me. You know, I handled things one piece at a time because there was too much going on and so I kept really toggling between the doctor-patient role. And again, I'm actually in my big Jewish family with three brothers. I'm the only doctor in my family, Um, like meaning even my father, my grandparents, all my immediate uncles. And so I was really still having this doctor identity vis-a-vis my father and all of his treatment that I didn't need it as much for myself. Wow. And I could, you know, kind of rely on... Natalie, to a great degree, and then even you know my surgeon and my surgical my plastic surgeon and my oncologic surgeon.
0: There's a there's there's an advantage when you say speaking the 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 lingo. There's a tremendous advantage to being able to speak medicine, and yes. uh, and it's a it is an absolutely it is a language as if it's from Greece. There is <laughs> nothing that a person who is not. A doctor can understand when all of a sudden the jargon comes out. And I have found personally, as someone who has advocated for other people in medical situations, that when because I have family members who are doctors, I will often look at whoever the doctor is who's treating the person for whom I'm advocating and saying something you might you might just want to wait till my brother gets here. (laughs) <laughs> i I don't speak your language so it might be interesting then as let's say your husband or your mother who takes you for chemo or anybody else in those in those um in those roles for you to to not be able to advocate to your for your benefit the same way you can advocate for yourself
1: you know you bring up so many things that I really want to talk about but that is it was very very tough for me the between me and my husband because he's not comfortable in that role, like you said. I've always been the one that manages everything, even from, like, pediatric checkups for the kids. And it was hard for me. When the doctors were speaking to me, they were using medical language because that was my comfort zone. Mm. And then on the times that he came with me, I felt like I had to translate (laughs) for him. Right. And I didn't do well with it. I really didn't because that just made me feel like I had one more job to do. And so it is a reason I went alone to a lot of things. It wasn't because no one cared about me. It was because I felt like I could get what I needed more directly. But then if you read in my book, I did screw up many times because I thought, I'll remember what they say. I'll remember these instructions. They're not so hard. And then I'd get home and i no one else had listened, and, and I was the only one that knew, and I was too embarrassed to call to ask them to repeat it, and I made mistakes that actually affected me, nothing horrible but definitely unpleasant. Um, and, you know, yes, I did advocate mostly for myself, and that ability I, I still had. My mother, for example, when she came to chemo, that was more like I was just too filled with Benadryl and chemo, <laughs> you know, agents to drive myself home, and I just need someone to drive with me, so... I guess I could have Ubered these days, but it was a little (laughs) pre-Uber.
0: You know, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left, though. I have a feeling that we could really talk about this for much longer. I know that you had put down the potential manuscript, and you talk about this at the beginning. You had put down the manuscript for this book and then came back to it two years later. Now that you came back to it, now that it's in print and it's available on Amazon, how are you feeling about your commitment to bring this book to print?
1: I am so, so enthusiastic about this book. I mean, I put my heart and soul into it, and I really try to refine it. And I've had so much amazing feedback that I see. it it's It's helpful for a couple categories of people, and that's who I'm trying to reach. So, you know, I'm really trying my best to advocate for it on my own and do a lot of public relations stuff on my own, because Gives a patient going through it a lot of details and knowledge that you just don't get laid out for you, you don't, is not told to you. But interestingly, I've had a lot of family members and friends read it, even when it's someone who had gone through this in the past and say, I never understood how to be there for that person. Mm. I never understood what they were really going through because a lot of times they'd resume their normal life, it's down the road stuff that are still persistent and everyone thinks it's over and kind of the sympathy goes away, but your story continues. And so also for family members and friends to just be more present, better, know how to, how to not be like crying and sympathetic, but kind of the, what the person needs at that time. And then the last category, which I'm really proud about and is very important to me is the, the caretakers, like the surgeons, the oncologists, like my plastic surgeon read the book. And he has been doing this for 20 years, and he said it was very eye-opening for him to really hear what it's like on the other side from a doctor. And so not that they don't have empathy, I'm not saying that at all, but a deeper understanding of what it would be like if the roles were reversed. And I think that just helps you be a stronger clinician.
0: Unbelievable. Well, what a story. Dr. Tali Lando Aronoff, the title of the book again is Hell and Back, Wife and Mother, Doctor and Patient, Dragon Slayer. It's put out by Archway Publishing and it is available on Amazon. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And being that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we have enough time, folks, to get in your orders and really heighten your awareness about the experience of breast cancer, breast cancer survival, and the heroes behind it. Tali, continued Good health and Hatzlacha to you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. And good luck in surgery. <laughs> whatever Thank you. You're, whatever you're up to. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to That's Live here at the Nahum Siegel Network. The afternoon continues with a full afternoon of programming. The live lunch starts in just a few moments, hosted by Nahum. Throwback Thursdays at 1 p.m. JM Rewind at 4 p.m. in the Erev Shabbos, host Erev Shabbos show, hosted by Mark Zamek at 7 p.m. this evening, tomorrow morning. I think we're going to pull up the song in the background. Uh, this is my ode to um to Ledovid it is elul has begun here folks and so can you hear it in the background it's a little bit of a throwback thursday moment it's aha shoalti by Miami boys yoni this is off of which album remind me oh you can't tell me all right all right anyway for those of you who are of my age you'll remember this from your childhood miami boys aha shoalti again from Lidovid. tune in tomorrow morning. It is Nahum hosts JM and AM from six to nine in the morning. At the conclusion of JM and the AM, Naomi hosts table for two at nine a.m. And then the Arab Shabbos, the Arab Shabbos show encore. Oh, you hear that? That is good stuff. The Arab Shabbos show is starts at ten a.m. Saturday night. Seagull, Matze Shabbos starting at nine p.m. Matz hosts JM Sunday seven a.m. Sunday morning again. This is Miami Boys Choir with Acha Shovalti. Throwback Thursday, folks. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.